0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Oh, hi there! I almost didn't see you. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, sort of quietly suggesting that my joke was terrible. Is senior writer Jonathan Strickland
1: with my magic book? I'll shower those clumsy lizards with my power. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah, he told me I, he had the perfect quote for this uh, this podcast. I, it's from a song that I didn't even know existed until about five seconds ago.
0: Okay, so we're going to do the uh, the whole catch you up. Um, if you're just tuning in
1: previously on Tech Stuff.
0: Nintendo started out as a playing card company in 1889, 1889, gradually diversified, then got out of several other businesses, including the toy market. But that did give them the idea that possibly this whole
1: video game thing might be an idea and they started creating uh, video game consoles that were only able to play a game or maybe si- up to six games but you know kind of like the old odyssey system in that it was very limited it was all hardwired into the system you could not put a cartridge in there was it was not cartri- cartridge based at that point also also created the game and watch which was ah, the yes. the portable variation of that but again single game. That's all that was on that system.
0: Meanwhile, the arcade craze is taken off all over the world and Nintendo finds itself uh, with a, a complete bomb and uh, asks a young designer... Miyamoto. <laughs> Shigeru Miyamoto to give it a shot. Can you come up with something that we can use in the video game market? And he thinks a storyline would sell games, so he creates a simple story about a, a, a giant gorilla who hauls off A a woman named Pauline to the top of a skyscraper and challenges uh, a young uh, plumber – well, actually, he was just a guy with a big mustache and overalls named Jumpman to come get her. Yep. And it uh, defies just about everybody in the company's expectations by becoming a huge hit and inspiring several several follow-up titles and – Licensing agreements with these different console manufacturers to bring them into homes because home video games are becoming popular in the early 1980s. So Ninten- late 70s and early 80s.
1: Yeah, Nintendo decides to get into that market while the getting is good. And I want
0: me some of that action.
1: They in, they introduce the Nintendo Family Computer and they launch it in Japan on July 15th, 1983.
0: The Famicom.
1: Yeah, it's what a
0: great name for a console.
1: Fourteen thousand eight hundred yen. Uh, Yeah, great name for a console, the Famicom. Uh, So if you're not familiar with the Famicom, that is what, in America, we referred to as the Nintendo Entertainment System. I was going to say, if you're not familiar with it, yes, you are. It didn't immediately (laughs) come over to America because at the same time as it was launching in Japan, America, in in North America, there was the video game crash. We talked about that. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Yeah, there's, there's an entire podcast about it, but to give you the short form of that what happened was the video game market was doing really well uh, so many players got into the system not not so video many, game players so, so many, many companies yes. got into creating video game systems and video game titles that the market became saturated and there were there were there it- were several really, really good games, but there were way more crappy games. Oh, and, I own some of those. Yeah, we talked about some of those in our worst video games of all time podcast. There were some of the, the the two big ones that leaped to mind were the licensed version of Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. And, of course, the number one game on everybody's list, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Almost everybody's. Yeah.
0: But no, a lot of that, that was the thing. A lot of the game, the idea was these games are a hit in the arcade. Let's bring them to the home console. So you had games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, um, stuff like Amidar, Burger Time, Reactor, and they tried so hard to make them work on home consoles immediately that they ended up being complete and utter dogs.
1: Yeah, they were just I mean, Amidar was horrible. It was such a rush to get to the market so that, that quality was was really sacrificed yeah. in order to get uh sacrificed in, in favor of speed. Well, Nintendo ended up not launching in America right away because again, this video game crash was taking place mostly through 1983. And so it wasn't until October 18th, 1985 that the Famicom made its debut in the United States. And of course, then it was known as the Nintendo Entertainment System. And originally, Nintendo took a very, very controlled approach to uh, introducing its system. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a, a nationwide launch. In fact, you could originally only get an NES if you were willing to go to New York City to get it Wow that was the limited market they introduced it to and it was something like a hundred thousand units and they sold out of 90,000 of them in a heartbeat um, in a New York minute yeah in a New York minute and the original NES when it first came out in New York was loaded with extras. In order to tempt people to buy it. Cause you got to remember at this point, the home video game market in the United States is toast. Yeah. People are starting to move to personal computers. Uh, video game consoles are looked at as things for kids and it's, and there's just no consistency in quality. Mm-hmm. So Nintendo had an uphill battle here. So when they launched it in New York, here's what it came with. This is a huge difference to the way you buy a video game console today. Mm-hmm. You got the console. Mm-hmm. You got two games. You got two game pads. You got the Zapper light gun, and you got the robotic operating buddy, or Rob, for hmm. one hundred and twenty-five dollars. Wow, now, that would be about two hundred and fifty dollars in today's money. But so that's still
0: sort of affordable in terms. I mean, you think about the PlayStation Three debuting at what six hundred dollars? Yeah, five ninety-nine in the United
1: States. Yeah, so it's it's you know it was a pretty uh, amazing deal at the time. And uh, it does very well, and then Nintendo starts to open up in other test markets, places like Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, still very gradual mm-hmm. until it goes nationwide Pretty much in 1986. Uh, and at that point, the uh, the price had moved up to $199. Mm-hmm. So the 125 was kind of the introductory price to kind of get that word of mouth campaign going. And, it, and once it went nationwide, they figured they could price it at 199 and that would be the right market value for the Nintendo Entertainment System.
0: I don't know. It might sell like hotcakes.
1: Yeah, it sure did. And in 86, that was also when, uh, in Japan, Nintendo introduced a special disc system accessory for Mm -hmm. the Famicom. Because remember, in Japan, it was, it was, uh, built as a family computer system. Right, right. Not just a video game console. So, it would allow you to actually use discs to, uh, uh, play games on the Famicom back in Japan. You could even go and have you know, a a disc made of a game or whatever at special vendors in Japan. Now, in in the United States, we were not so fortunate as to get access to this, although I'm sure there are plenty of collectors out there who have the Japanese version of it in America. That's always been a hot, like, underground market in the United States.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, keeping in mind, too, that um, in the late 70s when – or the mid-70s when consoles were starting to come into the homes – uh all this stuff was hardwired into the to the console itself as as Jonathan was just saying a minute ago yeah then they figured out that it was possible to uh, make a connector slot so that all the ROMs would be actually in the cartridge itself yeah and it would make a connection with that cartridge when you plugged it you had to give it a firm push to get it snapped into the slot the right way
1: also you had to you had to breathe into the cartridge that was that was required before you was what we always did yeah you had to go. <sighs> Before you uh Well it's good cartridges. to get
0: the dust out yeah. of it. Of course uh, some of the Atari cartridges had a, a little flap that yeah. protected the guts. Not all of them, nope. but some of them. Uh but yeah, the the Nintendo uh, entertainment system used similar cartridges too. They were they were wider than the uh the Atari cartridges, of course, yes. and and bigger. But uh yeah, they were using the same types of programmable ROM chips that you would just snap into the uh the game slot didn't yeah. have a disc like yeah. the game systems do now.
1: So in 86, they also introduced some titles that became big. Uh Commando, huge NES game. I think I'd heard of that. Yeah, fun one too. Ghosts and Goblins, one mm-hmm. of the most difficult games ever. Also mm-hmm. fun, but hard. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a 1942 came out in 1986, if that's not confusing.
0: That's a little weird. Uh
1: And in 87... Two other big names in Nintendo uh, franchises debuted. Uh-huh. Castlevania. Yes. And Metroid. Metroid. Yeah, so a lot of the, the games that would become sort of emblematic of Nintendo Entertainment System started to launch right around this time. And uh, the NES does incredibly well. Now, I never owned an NES. Neither did I. I had a friend who lived down the street from me who did own an NES, and I used to go over to his house all the time and play. And in fact, I played one of the, the games that won the best video game of the year for Nintendo. Now, that that happened uh, back in 1985. Uh, that game was Punch-Out! Ah, yes. I remember Punch-Out! And we're talking about the arcade game at that point. But man... Oh, the arcade game was a oh, huge hit. I loved Punch Out so much. That's one of those arcade consoles. Like you, you know, you always have that fantasy of, some of us anyway, of owning certain video game consoles. Like having a special room that would just have video game consoles in it. Punch Out would be one of the consoles I would own. Punch Out. There, there are two other titles I can think of right off the top of my head that I would have to own for that. And one, the, one of them would be the original Star Wars uh, arcade game. Ah, uh, yes. Use the force, Luke, and also the uh, Spy Hunter ah, video yes. game. Mm-hmm. Those are the so those would be the three elevator action maybe. Yeah, if, if I had room, but if I only had room for three, it'd be Spy Hunter, uh, it'd be uh, Star Wars, and it would be Punch Out.
0: Forget those of you keeping score at home. Punch Out is the only one that's a Nintendo game.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yes, but there you go. Yeah, one of the three games would be a Nintendo game because when most of us think of Nintendo, we don't necessarily think of the arcade games that much because they made such a huge name in the home console market. Now, Donkey Kong, of course, being like the big exception.
0: Yeah, well, that's how – I think that's how Nintendo was able to sell the Nintendo Entertainment System was that they could say, hey, we were the guys behind Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. and Super Mario Brothers.
1: Yeah, you don't have to worry about us taking uh, some Mario sort Brothers. of – uh yeah, uh well especially when they were porting games from the arcade to the console you know since it was the same company that was producing these hit games their titles and the console, were so much more faithful yeah and and so they you know that could be a message they send out to the market is like you don't have to worry about some terrible port of our game because we're the ones who made the arcade game we're the ones who made the console you know that the console is going to reflect the the gameplay that you are familiar with in the arcade well
0: one of the things that Jonathan touched on in the first episode and again If you haven't listened to it, we'll wait for you to come back and listen to that first. Uh, But one of the things he touched on was that the the, uh, CEO CEO at that time of of Nintendo insisted that everything go through him for approval. And that was important in a way because it ensured that there was going to be some quality in the stuff. They weren't just throwing it out the door like certain other companies that I could mention.
1: Yeah, like Atari. I didn't mention. Well, that was part of the problem of the 1983 video game crash. Yeah. So Nintendo but, had, had taken the certification process.
0: Yes. And that, that was a selling point for the Nintendo Entertainment System that the other consoles didn't have at that point.
1: Yeah. Cause if a title was going to be on the NES, it had to meet certain criteria. It had mm-hmm. to, it had to pass certification. It's and
0: frustrating it, for developers. Right.
1: Because a developer might have a great idea, but for some reason they run up against a barrier that to the developer seems arbitrary. And then, uh, you know, we see this today with developers who develop for Apple, for example, for, uh, for apps on the iPhone and the iPad. There are developers who say, I submitted this, I thought it was a great idea, and then I'm hitting a, a wall. And in some cases, it may seem arbitrary to an outside uh, observer, but to Apple, it may seem like, no, this is not following our rules, and this, the rules are there in order for us to a- ensure that the user has a good quality experience at the end of the day. That was Nintendo's approach too with the video games. I so said they did not want to fall into the same trap that Atari and Coleco had fallen into where they started to put out and publish games that or they allowed third-party publishers to publish games that just did not measure up. Now that did not mean that Nintendo was free of bad games, but they weren't glutted with them like the Atari was toward the end of its days.
0: Yeah, it it killed both Atari and Coleco. Yeah. And if you say, yes, but Atari is still around,
1: that's a different company. company.
0: They purchased the name. Yeah. Anyway, Anyway. um, yeah, that was was one of the selling points. Um, And the other was, uh, in addition to good marketing, they had something that they could market around, and that was uh, Miyamoto's characters. Um, Donkey Kong had made a name, well... Not literally, because his name wasn't his name at that point, but had a name character in Mario. Yeah. And they were able to use those characters in successive games. Yep. And so, uh, they basically had exclusivity. You didn't see Mario on games that weren't licensed by Nintendo. Nintendo was, was, uh, basically ensuring a future for itself by creating a storyline in, in its games that could be carried from game to game.
1: Yeah, they really started to protect their intellectual property. They were very protective of it. So in, in still fact, are. still are. Yeah, you still are not going to find uh, Mario pop up on, say, an iPhone game, which that'll come into play in, at the end of our conversation today. But uh yeah, so Nintendo has taken this approach and it's working well for them. Now, in 1988... Hmm. Uh, so this is 99 years into the company's history,
0: for those kind of you of keeping cool. score.
1: So 99 years in the company's history. Nintendo makes an agreement with another company mm-hmm. called Sony. I think I've heard of them, too. Yeah, they were going to work together and put out a new video game console system that would use optical disks instead of cartridges to it's, store games. Hey, that seems like a great
0: idea, because Sony's really good with this electronic stuff, I yeah. hear. Now,
1: unfortunately, As long as
0: Nintendo doesn't tick
1: them off. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Nintendo and Sony could oh. not see eye to eye on many aspects of the deal, and ultimately the deal fell apart. Now, this, this collapse. Nintendo, Nintendo, yeah. Nintendo. The collapse of this deal would later lead Sony to develop its own video game console system called the PlayStation. I think I've heard of that, too. You may very well have heard of that. Nintendo wishes it hadn't. Yeah, PlayStation (laughs) ended up causing a big headache for Nintendo, particularly in Japan, in a couple more years. But we'll get into that. In 1989, so on the company Centennial, (laughs) which is so hard to think of. Like, there's so many companies out there, and you're like, how many of them are a century old or older. Not many. Not many. Uh, Not many are still around. Nintendo is one of them. Uh, In 1989, the company introduces the Game Boy. Yes. Now, the Game Boy sold for $89.95 in the United States, which is about $150, about $156 today. Uh, And the Game Boy sold very well, partially because it was marketed not just to kids, but to adults who would spend time doing things like riding the train or the bus. If you were one of those people who was commuting on a system like that, then you would want something to, uh, occupy your time. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Chris is humming the theme song to the game that was packaged with the Game Boy that became like, it was, if you want to call about, talk about a killer app, or a killer title, this is like one of the top killer titles of all time. We're talking about Tetris, Mm -hmm. which was not a video game developed specifically by Nintendo. It actually came from a Russian developer. But Tetris was such a compelling puzzle game, and it still is today, uh, that it it was probably responsible for selling more Game Boy uh, units than just about anything else.
0: I played Tetris for so long on my Game Boy... That I could see when I turned off, you could tell this. Uh, this was a good game. When yeah. you turn off the game and you close your eyes to go to sleep, and you're still seeing those little shapes drift into place.
1: Or when you are moving and you're packing up the moving van, and at the time you're going do 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 yeah. do ah oh, crooked sp- piece. I don't. I needed an L shape. <laughs> uh, yeah. So why did I get that sectional?
0: Um, yeah, I uh, I spent many many hours with my Game Boy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was a very popular uh, device. I mean, That was it, my first Nintendo system. And Game Boy also was developed by. Uh, it was designed by Gunpei Yokoi, who we talked about in the last podcast. He was the fellow who was hired and had had turned Nintendo's fortunes around by introducing a toy that became the Ultra Hand.
0: Yes. Uh, Basically, an extendable claw that would grip uh, toy balls, or you know, that was what came with it. But you could use it for all kinds of other yeah, games. Yeah,
1: like harassing the family cat. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, the I'm um, sure that happened. More or often, twice. more often than not probably yeah so he well, he was the fellow who designed the game boy so yeah very popular design very simple design you know well, so
0: unlike his first portable uh foray this was this was basically the uh the atari 2600 of portable games because before that they were all hardwired yeah like the Mattel games with the little leds that would go you know bleep, bleep,
1: yeah bleep, bleep. and even even That's nintendo's it. uh uh, game uh ga- Games were all hardwired at that point. So this was the first cartridge-based one that really started to take off. Huge. So in 1990, Nintendo introduces the Super Famicom, <laughs> which in the United States, uh, a year later, in 91, was known as the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the NES was starting to near the end of its life cycle, although it was still supported for a few years after this. Oh, sure. Um, and the NES was an 8-bit video game system. The SNES... The Super Nintendo was a 16-bit game system, twice the bits. And um, at that time, Nintendo boasted an ownership, a market share of about 80% of the United States game industry and 90% of the worldwide game industry. Mm-hmm. So truly a dominant company at this point. Uh, also, this is a good time to mention the, the, the character designs that uh, Miyamoto came up with. The reason why the characters look the way they do is because the 8-bit gaming era was so low resolution that you had to pick a very simple yet iconic design to be able to show people what your character looked like.
0: So he has, Mario has a giant nose so you could see that he had
1: a nose at all. Mario has a mustache because it was easier to see than a mouth. His, <laughs> his, uh, his overalls, his hat, all of that was designed because in order for him to show up well against multiple backgrounds, he had to have a very simple design. And we're talking all the way back to the Donkey Kong days. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, even in the 16-bit, the designs get updated, of course, because now you've got higher resolution. But uh, they're still based on that very simple premise. And it was something that guided Miyamoto's design for for many years. Uh, yeah! yeah. <laughs> so now, right around the same time in Japan, Nintendo starts to face down lawsuits brought uh-huh. against it by... Competitors who are accusing... Nintendo of fixing prices with retailers, so that essentially the Nintendo products would stay on store shelves and 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 keep selling, while the competitors would end up getting pushed aside.
0: Yeah. Um, Nintendo was is no stranger to lawsuits yeah. in the 20th century,
1: which makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're the dominant player, then the antitrust lawsuits are going to start popping up because uh, really, for a while, Nintendo was—and no pun intended—the only game in town, or so it seemed. Now. We're gonna. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. So SNES is really popular. A lot of mm-hmm. really popular mm-hmm. titles come out on the SNES, but I don't think I need to go into all of those. Right. Um. Let's let's talk about one of Nintendo's major missteps. Not the okay. Power Glove, which was its own problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nintendo hasn't always succeeded when it's come up with some innovative products, and one of those innovative products that really bombed. Virtual Boy. Yes, 1995's Virtual Boy. Uh, but what could be
0: wrong with that? Virtual reality was the wave of the future. Yeah. We were all going to be walking around with these things on our heads that would show us these amazing landscapes. Yeah, we landscapes would be immersed
1: in a computer stuff. world that would be uh indistinguishable from our real world all around us as long as our real world all around us is a monochromatic vector graphic
0: as <laughs> representation. As it turns out, there's a glitch in the matrix.
1: Yeah. So the Virtual Boy comes out in 1995. It's a head-mounted display. It's actually on a little stand, and you lean forward. It's almost like a pair of binoculars. You you lean your head forward, and uh, you have a screen for each eye. Mm-hmm. And it re- if only it didn't have to be hardwired into your neural network. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It relied on something that we call parallax. Mm-hmm. And uh, parallax we've talked about on this podcast before. But in general, parallax is the phenomena we experience because our eyes are not located in the exact same spot in our head or else we'd all be cyclops uh we it gives have us
0: distance vision
1: yeah yeah there's a there's a difference between uh the way an object appears in your left eye and the way it appears in your right eye and your brain assimilates the information from these two images and that helps you judge things like depth mm-hmm. it's not the only thing that lets you judge depth and there are people who have trouble with parallax who can still tell generally how far something is away and of course the further away something is the less parallax matters because the the uh converging points become closer and closer to being parallel mm-hmm. instead of uh, converging on a single point um but anyway uh it used these two screens one for each eye to give the illusion of depth and it was a uh, monochromatic and used red graphics mm-hmm. which meant that. You know you were staring at a at a black screen with red graphics on it. I remember Wario showed up in uh, in Virtual Boy. and at first, I thought Wario was introduced in Virtual Boy, but that's not true. Wario Wario actually predates Virtual Boy by a few years. He, he first appeared on a Game Boy title. But uh, I remember there was a Wario title on Virtual Boy. And a friend of mine, um, no one actually, I guess none of my friends actually owned a Virtual Boy. I remember testing it out in in various toy stores. Toy Stores, not Toy Stories. Um, you got a friend in me. Yeah, thank you. And it launched at around 180 bucks when it came out in '95. Uh, it did not do well. Uh, people were disappointed in the graphics quality. They did not feel that it was uh, particularly compelling, and there were a lot of reports of people suffering massive headaches while trying to play this thing. I can't imagine why. And there, and there just weren't that many compelling titles either it was kind of like a triple threat really you had a a a system that just didn't feel like it was fully baked you didn't have a lot of really great titles and you had reports of people having headaches while playing it so uh yeah the virtual boy ended up being a um a bomb
0: a non-virtual bomb
1: yeah um and apparently i think eight hundred thousand of them were produced so they're now collector's items there aren't that many that ever hit the wild. At least they didn't bury them in the desert. No, they didn't grind them up and bury them under the desert like uh, certain video game titles Just were in the They didn't have to
0: ask Atari where theirs were, yeah. so they didn't put them on
1: top. Yeah, we want to put them next to E.T. Um,
0: yes. So how how do you recover from a flop like that? Well, they weren't – I would argue that the, the company's name wasn't damaged uh, to the point where uh, Nintendo was hurting, but that was certainly uh, – a thorn in its side. Yeah,
1: it wasn't like the Virtual Boy ruined their reputation entirely. It was just that it was not a success. Uh, but in 96, they did bounce back quite a bit. Mm-hmm. They introduced their next video game console. Now, uh, this was during the you know, we, we had the 8-bit systems. We had the 16-bit systems. A few 32-bit systems came out, but Nintendo did not jump on that bandwagon. Instead, uh, Nintendo bided its time for a 64-bit system and surprised the world when the Nintendo 64 came out. And I say surprised because they decided to stick with the cartridge-based games as opposed to moving to an optical disk system.
0: Yeah. So let's see. Who who were their competitors? Atari had basically uh, – you know, they had come out with the Lynx.
1: Yeah, we had
0: it was not doing well. You
1: had Sega, which we if you've listened to our podcast about Sega, you realize that Sega, although it was always and also ran when it came up against Nintendo,
0: except Nintendo really kind of uh, rebuilt the home digital uh, video game market. Yeah. And uh, and Sega came along about that time and they gave they they were the uh, the Apple to uh, Nintendo's Microsoft in this world because they pushed Nintendo harder. Yeah. And were a good competitor. And in fact, their marketing slogan was, Sega does what Nintendo don't. Yes. Because they had uh, Sonic. Sonic was designed to show off the speed of the, the Genesis uh, system. Yeah. And home. And it did a great job of, of showing that off because he moved very quickly. The graphics 16-bit system looked very nice.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then you had
1: Something. Sony... Yeah, the PlayStation really... In Japan, the Nintendo 64 did not do so well. And it's because its main competitor was the Sony PlayStation, which just seemed much more compelling. The graphics seemed better. Um, And they were using an optical disc system, which meant that the games could be far more complex. The cartridge Mm -hmm. had a limited amount of space that you could hardwire a game onto. And also it meant that there were limitations with a cartridge-based game that you didn't necessarily have with an optical system game. However... There were also positive sides to go with cartridge-based. Yes. The big one being that you didn't have to worry about loading times.
0: Yes, and you also don't have to worry nearly as much about ruining the cartridge as you did about scratching it. Yeah, disc. it's
1: much more robust than a disc was. But yeah, the the big one being loading times, because you know, with an optical-based one, the laser had to find the right track on the CD in order for it to start playing the right information, and then load that information into the uh, the console's memory so that you could start playing. Whereas with a cartridge-based system, it just, because everything's hardwired, it's never changing, it goes straight to where it needs to go, and you didn't have to have these loading screens. Mm-hmm. And Nintendo thought that was an advantage. And uh, in the, uh, the United States, it did quite well. In fact, some of the best games, some people would argue, of all time came out during the Nintendo 64 era. But that controller... I liked the controller. I actually enjoyed that controller, uh, and it was the first one to have a thumbstick in mm-hmm. Nintendo's history. Uh, not the first, not the first <laughs> one to have a thumbstick ever, but the first one for Nintendo.
0: Yes, before they were using the D-pad.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the like Golden came out for the Nintendo sixty four, and that was a big hit. That big was big hit. One of the one of the. Games that people still will refer to as one of the best video games of all time. Uh, Um, Oddly enough, I think it's probably uh, arguably
0: more favorite of people uh, than the actual movie. Yeah. And then that's just personal observation, not based on anything other than that. So don't write me and say, but no.
1: And there were other games like Mario 64 really kind of reinvented Mario Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, People thought that was pretty innovative. I was a huge fan of the wrestling games that came out for the Nintendo 64. They were very deep. They allowed incredible customization. You could create your own wrestler. Mm -hmm. Um, There were phenomenal games. And the Japanese games were even more... Robust than the American ones. I had all the American titles because I didn't have the uh, Japanese system. You, you couldn't play Japanese games on an American system unless you had an adapter, um, or a Japanese, you know, or, or you just went ahead and bought a Japanese game system. Right. The two systems were not compatible. They were region locked for the, um, you know, that's the easiest way of saying it, but uh, I loved a lot of the games in the N64. Well, N64 does well in the United States, doesn't do so well in Japan. In 2001, uh. They need a hit. They introduced the Game Boy Advance. hmm But they also introduced the Nintendo GameCube. Yes. So there's five years have passed since the N64 debuted. 96, N64 comes out. 2001, you get the game, the GameCube. And this is when Nintendo moves to the optical discs.
0: Except they don't use the big optical discs. No, they they're use the many same, discs. Size that same size as a CD or DVD.
1: No, these are smaller. Uh, yep. So, yeah, that kind of uh, part of that is a DRM thing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was one of those things where, where people were, oh, so now Nintendo's getting on the, the disc train as opposed to cartridges. Get on and the disc train. They did not look back from that point forward. Uh, nope, they had removable
0: storage. Yep. And. Uh, and a very nice game controller. Actually, the uh, the GameCube was my first Nintendo home console, not counting the Game Boy because that's a portable.
1: Yeah, it also had some uh, compatibility stuff with Game Boy Advance, mm-hmm. so you started to see some convergence here where you could you could have the two systems interact with one another, which I like. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And then in two thousand two, uh, Satoru. Iwata becomes the first Nintendo CEO who was not related to the founder uh, Yamachi mm-hmm. um, by marriage or by blood. So he was the first. It was the first time Nintendo had a CEO that was not part of this legacy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, uh, he took over at that point. In 2003, Nintendo introduced the Game Boy Advance SP, which was a thinner and lighter version of the Game Boy Advance. And uh, in 2005 and 2006, Nintendo starts to launch their DS line, which interestingly looked a lot like some of the old uh, the, the old uh, uh, game and watch um, systems mm-hmm. that uh, had the clamshell design, to double screens. Uh, but in this case, they included a touch screen with t- a stylus, and so that was kind of a differentiator in the home or the handheld market. Yep. At the time, because remember, in 2005 and 2006, smartphones had not really become a thing in the United States, and games for smartphones were pretty much unheard of at that point. Yes. At mm-hmm. least in the U.S. Um, and then the Nintendo launches the DSi in April of 2006. And then we have to, you know, the, the Wii also comes out in that, around that time, the Wii console, which is the current Nintendo console on the mm-hmm. market, introduces mm-hmm. the Wii Remote. Where you've got the motion gaming and Nintendo kind of surprises people by taking aim at the casual gaming market.
0: Yeah, see, um, if you'll remember, at that point, uh, Microsoft had released the Xbox and the Xbox 360. Yep. Um,
1: And Sony had the PlayStation 3.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they, the PlayStation 2 was a huge success. Yes. Uh, the Xbox was a huge success. And basically, Nintendo was taking it on the chin with the GameCube. Although yeah. the GameCube was sophisticated, um, and it had, again, the, the, uh, uh, brilliant licensing maneuvers of Nintendo by keeping Mario and the Zelda franchise and some of the others, Metroid, uh, alive on the console and locked into the Nintendo console. The yeah. fans of the franchise, again, Miyamoto's thinking that there should be a story is playing into Nintendo's success because without that storyline, and the fans want the storyline, Nintendo probably, I I think you could argue um, that Nintendo may not have survived past that because uh, there was an onslaught from Sony and Microsoft, and they needed, again, they needed something to differentiate them from the the rest of the market, and the Wii did that.
1: Yeah, and it was – when the Wii came out, it really did make a big splash. I mean it had huge sales figures and it was leading the video game console sales in the United States for for ages. I mean for the longest time it was – the question wasn't who's in the lead. It was who's in second place Mm -hmm. because you knew that Nintendo was in the lead. But uh, Nintendo – sales have slowed down more recently Mm -hmm. uh, because – well, a lot of reasons. The the game console is several years old now. Mm-hmm. And, um, as are the Xbox and the PlayStation models, the current models, but Nintendo also has the problem of it aimed for casual gamers and casual gamers don't tend to be the kind of people who rush out and buy the next new title necessarily. They might be satisfied with just a few, a handful of titles because they, they game casually. They're not that they're not as heavily invested in the system as a hardcore gamer is. Yeah.
0: I mean, um, they gamers will. Replay games, even on older consoles, they will keep older consoles and older computers around to play classic games that they really love. Uh, case in point, the newer versions of GoldenEye, yeah. long after the movie franchise has moved on several films, Yeah. Um, GoldenEye yeah. is sticking around on newer consoles.
1: Yeah. And so you've got uh, – with the Nintendo Wii, you've got this issue with saturation again, just like – with the video, uh, the playing cards back in the the sixties, you've got uh, you know the argument is just about everyone who wants a Wii has a Wii, mm-hmm. and so there's not a whole lot of reason to go out and buy more. So of course, sales figures are going to start to to falter. Plus, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. Plus, Microsoft now has the Connect, yep. and Sony has the Move, so now so the they're all control, using Motion Control. Right. Motion Control is not as big a deal anymore, um, and so also the smartphone. Revolution and the, the gaming on smartphones and social networks has taken a big bite out of Nintendo because Nintendo was taking aim at that casual gamer. Well, back in 2006, when the Wii comes out, the casual gamer wasn't really being catered to that way. But today, you've got everything from phones to, uh, to, uh, you know, set top boxes in some cases to, um, uh, you know, the social networks that all have these casual games that are available. Nintendo's no longer got a, a lock on that. So it's – they're actually – in a way, you could say their competition is way more fierce in that area than it would be if they were competing against Microsoft and Sony. Well, now I would argue that that Nintendo is finding itself at a
0: crossroads. Yeah. Um, it has announced the Wii U, which is the next uh, version of the Wii. um Yakoi had said, uh, as you will recall from the last podcast, that Nintendo was the kind of company that takes mature technology and utilizes it to create new products, mm-hmm. which is exactly what they did with the Wii. That enabled them to hit a lower price point out of the, out of the gate. Um, and people criticized the hardcore gamers who liked the Xbox 360, who liked the PlayStation 3 because it had, uh, full on hard, uh, high definition graphics uh but criticized the Wii because it only had the uh the lower definition um well it's still high def but it, it's uh DVD resolution not the 1080p it was right. 720p um and or i uh, is it 720p or 720i
1: anyway uh, well, at any rate it's, 720
0: it's, lines of resolution yeah
1: it's not a it's not top of the line
0: yeah and uh the Wii U is aimed at the high def market and it has a again they've reinvented the uh the controller it has a, It's a much bigger controller that has uh, additional functionality. It has its own screen. Um, so it's they're almost also... like
1: combining the, uh, the DSi with the um, – Exactly. With the – yeah.
0: Um, and some people really like it. Some people really don't. We'll have to see when it actually gets out on the market, whether it succeeds or not. But the DS is competing with smartphones and other devices, and people have pointed out, and rightfully so, why would I pay $30, which is sort of the price point for a new DS game, when i can get the same exact game for
1: my smartphone for $5. Yeah. And and my smartphone does stuff other than play games. So some people say that perhaps Nintendo should get into the smartphone business or perhaps Nintendo should re uh, you know reevaluate its its line on not licensing out its its prime core material to other companies. We should also point out the 3DS which launched in 2011 is another Nintendo oh. slow starter. It has not done nearly as well in the market as they had hoped. That, of course, is the DS system, the handheld gaming system that has the glasses free uh, 3D effect mm-hmm. using uh, uh, essentially a, a variation on a lenticular display. If you'd like to see
0: one taken apart, you can see that on our website.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I we bought one specifically for me to demolish and I did and there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth yes but the uh yeah the 3ds was sort of nintendo's approach to try and combat the smartphone uh casual gaming market by mm-hmm. introducing this new element 3d which was not available on most other systems but it just has not taken off and a lot of people who who have enjoyed the 3ds have told me this is anecdotal but mm-hmm, they have mm-hmm. told me that they've they just turned the 3d off because it's just more of a problem than than uh, uh it doesn't it doesn't enhance the gameplay for them.
0: Yeah. So. The, the XL, however, has done reasonably well. It's yeah. a DS with a larger screen.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I, I, we need to start wrapping up this, uh, this episode. But I did want to point out one other thing. We, we've been talking about lots of different people. And I do have a kind of a tragic ending for one of the, the folks involved in this story. Um, Yakoi, the guy who was the designer who came up with the Game Boy design. He also designed the Virtual Boy. So not everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, he decided to leave Nintendo in 1996, mm-hmm. and he went to found his own company. But unfortunately and tragically, uh, he died as a result of a car accident in 1997. Mm-hmm. He, he, mm-hmm. His car rear-ended a truck uh, on a highway, and when he got out to inspect the damage, he was struck by another driver and died as a result. Mm. Uh, so that was something I thought I'd mention. It was an, a person who really was – Instrumental in the design of a lot of early Nintendo products, and his design elements carried over into current generation Nintendo products. And I thought it was uh, it was important to remember him. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, it's sad, of course, the way um, the way that all turned out. But uh, I thought it was uh, something that we should definitely touch on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. It'll be interesting to see what happens to Nintendo in the future. Recently, as of 2011, the company has been struggling financially. Uh, it's just it's one of those things where the video game console market saturation has caused problems. The 3DS sales have caused problems, but the company has returned from setbacks in the past. Yeah. So we can't we can't just discount Nintendo and say that they're out of the game. Like they're they're also ran at this point. There's always the the chance that they're going to reinvent. The home video game market yet again. Yeah, and it's it's uh, well,
0: just before we recorded this, uh, a few days ago, they announced that their earnings were going to be less even than they had predicted before, um, which has caused some uh, mumblings of doom and gloom around the industry. But um, uh, you know, they could also end up as Sega did. Uh, you you wonder what the creators of Mario and and Link and and all those other characters, Kirby and so many of the others that we love, um, would would do. I mean, Sega found as it got out of the video game console business that it still could make great video games, uh, some not so great, um, but still sell them to uh, markets and reach out through other people's hardware. And I think they've been somewhat successful in partnering with Nintendo um, to do that. Uh so it is possible that even if Nintendo gets out of the hardware business they could still end up making fantastic games around their, their wonderful characters. Um so hopefully uh you know if they find a way to um uh, that they'll find a way to continue one way or the other. But uh they're still not they're still not out of it yet. And I'm no. interested to see what happens with when the Wii U comes out. Um you know, in the market in the, the not-too-terribly-distant future.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes open, and uh, we'll be sure to report on it, of course. So that wraps up this discussion about Nintendo, the two-parter episode. If you guys have any companies you would like us to focus on, or even other topics that have nothing to do with the company whatsoever, let us know. Send us a message. You can email us. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is h s w, And Chris,